Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll get an update on the economic outlook from Mark Zandi, chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Mark is a trusted advisor to policymakers and an influential source of economic analysis for many businesses, journalists, and the public. He frequently testifies before Congress, and he conducts regular briefings on the economy for corporate boards, trade associations, policymakers at all levels. Mark is, uh, earned his uh, Bachelor of Science degree from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and he also got his Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania. Mark and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Mark, we've had uh, some big economic, year-end economic numbers come out lately. Uh, the good news and the bad news, there was a very strong GDP growth number. Uh, seems we grew at 5.7% in 2021. Very strong growth, uh, best since 1984. Uh on the other hand, we had a very big number for inflation, 7%, uh, most since 1982. So we seem to be reviving the early 80s here. Uh, but I, be before we get into some of the more technical questions about um, how difficult it is to make budget projections in this changing environment, <laughs> let me ask you to make <laughs> some budget projections. Uh, just what, what, what's your take on, on the outlook for both GDP growth and inflation uh, in the coming year? I think it should be a good year, Bob. Uh, I think uh, growth will slow. It can't maintain 5.7% for very long, uh, but it'll be strong enough that the economy should be back to something we consider close to full employment by the end of the year. You know, an unemployment rate that's kind of in the low to mid threes, somewhat higher labor force participation. And I also expect inflation to moderate. Uh, you might, it's not going to go back to the Fed's target by the end of the year. It might take longer than that, just uh, given the pandemic is creating havoc in supply chains and in labor markets. But it'll certainly be moving in the right direction. And I do think by kind of mid-2023, we'll be back close to the Fed's target. So I have a pretty sanguine view. But, you know, it's based on a boatload of assumptions, most importantly being that the pandemic will... Uh, recede, and what I mean what I mean by that is that each new wave of the virus, and I suspect we'll have additional waves after Omicron, but each new wave is less disruptive to the healthcare system and economy than the previous wave. That's kind of sort of what's been going on since the pandemic hit two years ago, and if that continues, I think we should land in a pretty good place by the end of the year. The last thing I'll say on it: uh, obviously, there's a lot of risk around that sanguine baseline view. Uh, that's kind of like in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes, but there's a wide distribution skewed to the downside. So I think it would be prudent to focus on kind of downside risks. But, you know, I think if I were at the CBO doing the economic forecasting for the budget, uh, I think it would be, a, I'd land on a pretty 
sanguine outlook for the economy over the coming year. And just to um, uh, get back to <clears throat> one of the international issues is the whole supply chain question. Do you see that uh, resolving over the coming year? Uh, getting much better. Uh, again, that goes back to the pandemic and I, the, particularly the Delta wave of the pandemic, which nailed us, but it really creamed Asia, Southeast Asia, where a lot of supply chains begin. And I think, you know, if you, if you go back to the summer fall of last year uh, in Asia, they were very lightly vaccinated, you know, outside of China, you know, Southeast Asia, there was just no vaccines. That's changed uh, dramatically. And I don't, and I think policies have changed. I don't think Asian countries outside of China are going to shut down like they did uh, in the Delta wave. So I suspect, uh, you know, supply chains will start to iron themselves out. And also, you know, at these higher prices, uh, businesses are making a, a lot of money. Uh, profits are very high. And uh, that's a very strong incentive to invest and expand uh, capacity. Uh, and, and that's what we're seeing. Investment's very, very strong. Uh, you know, that'll take a little bit of time to, uh, ad- uh, to uh, get back, get online and to, address, uh, to, to have some impact on the shortages. But, you know, by this time uh, next year, I, I expect a lot more capacity coming online and that'll bring prices down. So, yeah, I think uh, we'll see slow at first, but then much quicker improvement in supply chains as we move through the year. All right. Well, next uh, January, we'll have you back and we'll see how it worked out. <laughs> please, please, please do. And, this, you know, uh, I know it's, it's intrepid to have a, a track record, but, you know, that's that's what I do for a living. So I just did it. Well, just to emphasize how difficult all of this is, uh, Tori is going to pick up with some questions about uh, making economic projections in this difficult environment. Tori, sure. you want to jump in? Sure, sure. Um and one of the things I wanted to talk about today is is economic data. Um, you know, Mark, you and I were talking earlier, you know, you and I met years ago, I won't say how long, uh, when I was just a newbie revenue forecaster um, and trying to you know, gather economic data about the state I was working for and, and predict where the state's revenues were, tax revenues were going to go. So, you know, economic data and the future performance of the economy, uh, they play a really important role in driving fiscal and monetary policy decisions. You know, we the policymakers in Washington, uh, whether it's fiscal policy or monetary policy, they watch measures of GDP, inflation, and the labor market to understand where and how to direct policy. Um, but the signals that we've been getting uh, as the economy emerges from COVID, uh, or at least the recession that was induced by COVID, have been uh, a little bit discordant and pretty volatile, um, especially jobs data. And of course, one of the first rules that you and I both know of economic forecasting is garbage in, garbage out, meaning you could have the best model in the world. uh, But if the data that you're using is wrong, then the forecasts from your model are going to be wrong, too. So I'd like to talk with you a little bit about why the economic data has been so volatile and more important more importantly how economic forecasters like yourself have responded and i wanted to stop start with the the obvious which is the jobs data you know the headline jobs data the monthly unemployment rate and the number of jobs created, which comes from a different data sort, the establishment survey, they've been moving it seemingly in, in, in different directions. Job growth has been slowing and it's been very erratic. Big boom, boom, one month, 
bust the next month. But the unemployment rate's been dropping like a stone. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what accounts for the seeming diversion between the two measures of the labor market and how should policymakers interpret those two data points? Yeah, you make a great point, Tori. And uh, yeah, we go way back uh, when you're doing revenue projections. I was helping out with the uh, Mac, the economics behind those mm-hmm. projections, but uh, uh, I'm sure you got it. You got it. You nailed it. I'm sure you were a great forecaster. It was easy. The revenue, the economy was growing then. It was, you know, it's easy to forecast <laughs> a straight line. That's, that's <laughs> a good point. Yeah, if it's going in one direction, I'll, that's uh, that's a nice thing. Uh, it makes the forecasting a little bit easier. Well, I think the. Uh, the data issues revolve around broadly two things. One, and, the, and you're right, the data's been a mess. Uh, it, and that was in part due to the pandemic. I mean, you know, a wave rolls over us and, you know, when that happens, it does a lot of damage. You know, people get sick, they stay home to take care of sick family members or fearful of going to work and getting sick. Uh, so you see, uh, the job market kind of hit a wall, uh, uh, particularly in those industries that you know are kind of on the front lines. You know, leisure, hospitality, retail, healthcare, recreational. Uh, uh, so you know, things, uh, the kind of the industries that are you know most directly impacted by the pandemic. Then the, the wave passes through, and the economy comes right back to life. Uh, people start doing things again, and. You get the jobs back, and uh, so you get these big swings in in in, in, uh, in monthly job gains. So, the, the I think the first reason for the volatility in, in the data is simply the pandemic. You know, it's it, the it's just scrambling things. Second thing is uh, again the pandemic, but it's just the way the government measures things. You know, the way they construct their surveys and construct the estimates and do all the statistical analysis and seasonal adjustment and everything else. And there's a lot of aspects to those measurement issues, but one of the most significant is just response rates. You know, you know, mm-hmm. in the you mentioned the the employment from the payroll survey. That's kind of the number we look at to gauge employment growth. And then you mentioned the unemployment rate that comes from a survey of households, the household survey. Uh, response rates for both have been very low since the pandemic hit. You know, for some for some obvious reasons, like in the household survey. That before the pandemic was predominantly done by, you know, kind of uh, uh, telephone interviews and and going out and meeting people and seeing people and, and, you know, shaking hands and getting the information. Can't do that in the pandemic. So they've had to go more online and and do more more telephone interviews. And then on the establishment survey, that's the the, uh, surveying businesses. That was done also, I think, mostly by um, by telephone, very little based on the web, believe it or not, you know, even two mm-hmm. years ago, but now it's increasingly done on the web and the telephone interviews have fallen. So, but response rates have come in, have declined during this period. And so that just makes it more difficult to come up with good solid estimates. Cause these are samples that they're, they're, they're surveying samples of, of businesses. They're not, they're not getting data from all the businesses in the country. <coughs> and then as they get more information in as the surveys responses start to come in and they get you know more complete information they revise the data and then of course I'll mention one other thing and then I'll stop I mentioned seasonal adjustment you know they, they, there's a lot of seasonality in the data as you can imagine you know mm-hmm. you go through the winter you know you're just not going to see the same activities you're going to see in in the spring and in the fall and the, and the government tries to adjust the uh, adjust for those seasonal patterns to try to get to the underlying trend to abstract from the seasonality but that uh, 
is a statistical effort that got all messed up with the pandemic and when it hit and it just created havoc in this in the in the statistical adjust analysis done to create those seasonal adjustments and so that complicates things enormously uh, but that's just two of many other measurement issues that are you know i think behind the the, the difficulty we're having kind of measuring what's going on in the economy. Yeah, you kind of anticipated one of my questions, which was going to be about seasonality and the seasonal adjustment factors, because I remember two specific instances last year. Number one is when the teachers went back to school last summer. Apparently, they went back early because we had this huge jobs report in, in July, I guess, um, because they were, I guess, normally we expect the teachers to go back in August or maybe it was shifted back one month. I can't remember if it was June or July. Yeah. Then the following month, the jobs report was... Yeah totally sunk because they were expecting all these teachers to come back to work, but they had already come back to work. So the seasonal adjustment effect factors were up. And then I saw the same thing with Christmas hiring. You know, it's, it seemed yeah. that, 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 that either we didn't hire as many seasonal people this year or they hired early or they hired, but anyway, it just seemed like the seasonal adjustment factors were, were way off as, as well. Um, is, is that something that you expect to, to, to moderate um, with, with, uh, sort of a return to normalcy, or is this something that's sort of always a problem with the, the seasonal adjustment factors? Well, they'll moderate, but it'll take time, years. Mm -hmm. I mean, we said we had the same kind of problem coming out of the financial crisis because that creamed us. Hard to remember back, but the early part of '09, and it just kind of messed all the seasonal factors up, and so we were kind of struggling with that. The fallout from that, when looking at the month-to-month -month movements in the data, you know, for years afterwards. So I suspect that's going to sort of happen here. I, but that you know brings up an important point, and that is not to rely too much on any one month's worth of data. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, because it, it can clearly send you thinking the wrong way if you kind of take it literally. You have to put it into context and really look at it, you know, and try to adjust for those seasonal issues, or you know, put it into a broader context. Look at you know what's going on over the last several months and kind of iron out those seasonal adjustment issues. So uh, this is why the economists get paid the big bucks, Tori, mm -hmm. because we help you navigate <laughs> through those those measurement issues. But uh, so you know, I just wouldn't take any one month's worth of data, whether it's big, small, whatever, you know, uh, at face value. You've got to put it into some kind of context because of these issues. You don't. You aren't going to remember this, but this is actually one of the first lessons I learned from you uh, when I was just a newbie economist trying to forecast revenues. And you said to me at one point, two data points are not a trend." Uh, <laughs> they do create a line seared into my memory ever <laughs> since did i say that well I, I think i've said that many times since we i said it <laughs> so right. um and, and going back to the volatility question again um cecilia rouse who is the chairman of the white house council of economic fighter advisors uh she wrote in a recent uh blog post on that the jobs data, I mean, let's be honest, any around a turning point, you know, economic data is always noisy, right? Yeah. Up, down, up, down around turning points. So when you're emerging from a recession or when you're tipping into a recession, you know, data is normally noisy. But she, she was talking about how the, the monthly volatility in the jobs data is approximately four times greater than it was when we were coming out of the Great Recession just you know, 10, 12 years ago. And she wrote that right now job growth in one, mo in one month is less predictive of job growth the next month than it has been in the past. Is there a, a, a reason between, because I mean, the Great Recession, that was hugely disruptive. Yeah. Um, and, and that was seemingly longer lasting. Um, and yet, 
you know, here we are uh, trying to emerge very quickly from a, a very deep but very quick recession, and yet volatility is just so much greater. I'm, I'm wondering if it goes back to the whole, you know, data collection method, and if you know people are working from home, and maybe BLS can't reach the people that they're supposed to be reaching because people are working from home. Is 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 that it, or is, is there just something even more? nefarious afoot. No, I think, I mean, I think it's because of the idiosyncratic nature of the pandemic. I mean, we, you know, we literally uh, shut down the economy, you know, for two, three months. And then we kind of sort of opened it up, sort of, you know, a little bit at a time. And then the vaccines hit and then we came out of our shell all at once. Remember back uh, summer of, uh, of 2021 and then Delta hit and then we were back, you know, kind of sheltering in place again, not to the same degree. We didn't, we had the vaccine, so we felt a little bit more comfortable. But, you know, those uh, shutting the economy down, opening it, shutting the economy down, opening it, you know, creates this massive volatility in, you know, what's going on in the economy. And, uh, you know, I just think it, the, 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 the financial crisis and Great Recession, that was a doozy of a recession, but it was kind of more of a classic, you know, you know, business cycle on steroids, admittedly, but it was a more classic kind of business cycle, and we understand how things unfold. This was just off the charts different, right? We, you know, uh, very, very different kind of um, uh, hit to the economy. Um, and, and then this was global in orientation, too. So it's just everywhere on the planet, and the virus is unfolding in different parts of the world at different times and doing different things to different parts. And it's creating damage to our economy through supply chains and financial markets and everything else. So I think it goes to the just the idiosyncratic nature of the shock we were, we've been we were suffering. You know, it was a it was just a hit the demand side of the economy, the supply side of the economy. It was just very very difficult to kind of navigate through because uh, of uh, you know the nature of, of the shock we we, we suffer we've been suffering. Mm-hmm. So let's. We, I think we've pretty much really laid out the the the, the nexus of the problem. Oh, can Question. I mention one other thing? Yes, just, sir. Now that you just dawned on me, another feature of this period that you know complicated things, I think, and created a lot of volatility is the government response. Right? I mean, we had mm-hmm. pretty significant response monitoring fiscal in the financial crisis, but what we got here was orders of ma- magnitude more massive. And that really complicated things, right? And like, I mean, unemployment's going skyward, but consumption is fine because everyone's getting stimulus checks and unemployment insurance. So, you know, the kind of this, you've got, look, well, unemployment's 15% and appropriately measured it's 20, but no problem because, you know, people have cash, you know, PPP and everything else. So that also complicated, you know, kind of what was going on in the economy created more volatility in the economy uh, than, than was the case. We're going to have to take our first break here now at the, at a, at a good point there is uh chore. You're just getting wound up and, and I uh, have a, my follow up uh, question would have to do with what you just brought up about the, uh, the fiscal stimulus and uh, monetary policy. And what do we do now on the downside coming back down from that? So you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking to Mark Zandi, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and I are talking with Mark Zandi, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics, and we're talking about economic data and the outlook for the economy. Uh, Tori, you want to pick it up where you left off? 
Sure. I, I mean, we were having a, a great discussion about sort of the, the trouble, the problems with some of the economic data, especially the, the jobs data. And uh, I wanted to ask, um, <clears throat> get into sort of the professional science, if you will, a little bit, Mark. How do you distinguish or is there a way without getting you know too technical? Is there a way for economists to actually distinguish or differentiate between actual volatility in a data that occurs naturally around turning points versus measurement error because BLS, for example, couldn't survey everybody that they needed to survey. Is there well, a way to, to get around that or tease no, it out? No way. I mean, you know, if you're down into the bowels of the data, you know, you, you have a sense of whether it's measurement or whether it's, you know, actual volatility or, you know, just the, the kind of the inherent uh, ups and downs and all arounds in the data. Uh, so there's really no good way, I don't think, of kind of uh, correcting for that, at least not in a comprehensive, consistent way. I mean, maybe for individual statistics, you know, there are things we can do to, you know, um, uh, to try to cut through the, the, the noise and get to the underlying trend. But that's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's one reason why I think economists during the pandemic have started to turn to third, what I call third-party data, non-government sources, because you know that provides additional insight and gives some color to what we're observing from the government data. And we could talk about that if, if you. Have yeah, no, that's a great segue into my next question, which is okay. We know that we've got this problem. You know, some of this data that comes out, you just sort of scratch your head and you're like, wait a minute, that just can't be right. That just yeah. doesn't make sense. It doesn't match what what we're seeing in you know fill in the blank. So my question is is how how have economists compensated for the the, the sort of volatility in this measurement error and government statistics during the pandemic? And you had mentioned alternative sources. Are we going to other sources or more frequent data, more reliable data? What what's what's sort of been your go to? Yeah, without, I mean, I, without I, revealing I, your secret sauce, right? No, 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 no. Uh, I, 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 and don't worry, it changes daily. So you know, the sauce changes. So there's no way someone's going to capture it and put it in a bottle. Uh, it, you know, I, it, we're relying on a lot of different sources now. And really, the pandemic has, has kind of uh, supercharged the efforts to get other data, real-time data. So, you know, everything from like Google Mobility, which has been really very important, to open table data on restaurant bookings, to home base on you know, what's going on in the labor market. We collect data, uh, work with ADP, the human resource company. They, you know, put out their own employment data, which I think has been, you know, quite useful in understanding what's going on. Just another look at the labor market. You know, we get data uh, uh, on all the credit files in the country from Equifax, anonymized, obviously, but we can use that to, for example, see where people are moving to real time. I can tell you how many people moved uh, Tori from Arlington, Virginia to, you know, uh, Miami, Florida last month in the month of December by income, by race, you know, so forth and so, no, excuse me, not by race, uh, income and age, not race. I, I wish I had that, but I don't have that uh, mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. But this, that, that um, uh, other data, that real-time data has been very helpful in informing and providing context and color to the government data. The other thing I, I will say, though, the government's been pretty good about this. I mean, they have come up with additional data sources, too. So, for example, one of the best new data sources is the Census Bureau Pulse Survey. I don't know if you follow that uh, mm -hmm. data. It's fantastic. You know, they've been doing a survey of a lot of households two to three, every two, three, four weeks since the pandemic hit. And you can learn a lot about what's going on. So, for example, in their last survey that ended January 10th, 
they asked people who aren't working, why aren't you working? And you could see that almost 12 million people weren't working because they were sick with COVID, the Omicron variant, at home taking care of sick people, or were fearful of getting sick. And that was the highest it had been throughout the entire pandemic. That's why we're getting a January employment data on, on Friday that probably will decline because you had so much talk about volatility. We're going to see an outright decline in employment in, in the month of January for the month of January because of all the sick people that were out to out to work. But the, that third party day has been invaluable in trying to understand what's going on, given mm -hmm. all the problems we just discussed. That's fascinating. So let's talk about revisions. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's common for economic data to be revised. Um, this year is an election year. It's kind of an important year, even though it's not in a presidential election year. Uh, control of, of House and Senate is up for grabs. Um, and so that means everything is political this year, including how Republicans and Democrats spin economic data. Um, given the, the post-recession volatility and the higher probability of, of measurement error in the economic data, should voters expect big revisions in some of these major variables? And do you expect these revisions, if they exist, to to come before Election Day? Yeah, we get revisions, uh, you know, kind of monthly revisions. So we got the employment data for the month of uh, December, you know, a month ago. This month, uh, for the month of January, that number will be revised, and then it'll be revised again when the new data, the month of the data for February come out, and so forth and so on. And then you get these large so-called benchmark revisions. I'm talking about the employment data where, you know, they take the the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, takes the employment data based on the sample of businesses that are participating and benchmarks that to an actual count of employment that comes based on unemployment insurance records. That's a full count. They do that once a year. And by the way, that revision is coming out on this coming Friday for the month of January. And that data will, will revise the employment data all the way back for several years. So that's a big revision. So yeah, uh, the data gets uh, will we'll continue to get revised. The revisions will be large given all the things that are going on in the economy and the measurement issues. And it is going to be, you know, make it more difficult for voters to kind of figure out, well, how well is the economy doing? And, you know, uh, uh, you know, how should I think about that in the context of whom I'm voting for? So, yeah, that's going to make it more difficult. So which brings me to my last question, and that's about inflation. So we were we've been talking a lot about uh, volatility and measurement error in jobs data. Um, do we think it's it's showing up in inflation data? I know that uh, there are a variety of different ways to measure inflation in the U.S. economy. Are we starting to see some of that volatility in price data? And do you think that there might be a different story on inflation come November than there is now? Uh, well, I think the measurement problems around inflation, you know, consumer price inflation, other measures of inflation is less than it is for uh, for things like employment, you know, these are, you know, more tangible kinds of things. I, and I'm just, nothing is easy, but it's easier. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, what was the uh, price for this, this, uh, this uh, can of peas last month and this month? Now, it's, it's harder than that looks because the number of peas in the can could actually be different, you know? Right. Uh, so, you know, it's not, nothing's easy, but it's easier. And I think I, we, get, we get a better sense of it. The problems with infl measuring inflation, though, is in inflation for whom? You know, because the inflation we're measuring is the inflation for the typical American, but nobody's typical. You know, everyone's got a different 
basket of goods and services that they purchase. So their inflation rate is very different. So if I'm an older American or a younger American, if I'm an urban American or a rural American, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spending my money or, you know, on different things. And so my inflation rate could be very, very different than, you know, what the inflation rate I see produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So I think that's the biggest complication that people have when they're trying to evaluate. But bottom line, inflation for everybody is going to be lower come election day than it is today if again we you know things stick to my script around the pandemic if the pandemic goes off the rails here then you know you know we got all kinds of other issues and inflation is going to be one of them but if the inflation kind of you know throttles back here and let let each wave is less disruptive than the previous one i think yes inflation going into the election will won't be back where everyone feels comfortable about it but it'll certainly be headed in that direction well you know about um um consumer substitution in in inflation uh, you used a, a can of uh, peas. I, I literally experimented on myself and switched from a, a national brand to the generic supermarket brand on canned um, green beans, which oh. I eat and saved a great deal of money. <laughs> well, there you go. So, yeah. And, that- and you know what? They're just as good. So Are anyway. they? Well, that's good to know. So, you no, know, almost, you're... you know, pretty, pretty much. But anyway, that's a kind of an interesting as, as I was thinking uh-huh. to myself, you know, I'm, I'm doing kind of a consumer <laughs> choice of action right here. You know, Tori, we learned a lot about Bob, this whole green bean thing. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, that says a lot about Bob, I'll have to say. Well, Bye anyway, we're, we're kind of at a uh, we're getting close to the end here, but I want to just look ahead. Uh, because the economy is uh, sort of at one of those pivot points, again, we hope, uh, to beginning to, to pick up steam. So that means looking at some of the things that were put in place, you know, do we still need them? How do you kind of unwind all of the things? And, you know, it comes up in, in um, some proposals in Congress because of the Omicron uh, variant and its effect on certain um, sectors, hospitality and, and uh, uh, restaurants. Uh, maybe there needs to be uh, some other kind of relief. Um, I'm wondering what you think of that, if there's any, any, anything Congress can do on the fiscal side. And then on the monetary side, we mostly focus on fiscal stuff here, but, but you, you can't overlook the, yeah. the enormous amount of monetary uh, stimulus into the economy and the Fed said it's going to start raising rates and um, and, and even more significantly, maybe beginning to unwind its enormous balance sheet. Um, and I'm wondering if those might have some effects or, you know, how those might affect the, the budget and the economy. Well, you remember I said to start growth will slow this year compared to last. One of the key reasons is policy. I mean, the Federal Reserve, as you pointed out, is pivoting. You know, last year was massive you know, support to the economy, zero interest rates, bond buying, credit facilities. Uh, this year is going to be about, you know, winding down the QE and actually letting the balance sheet start to run off. And uh, perhaps more importantly, allowing interest rates to rise and, and, and uh, raising rates, you know, more aggressively to kind of, you know, make sure that the economy doesn't uh, actually overheat, that once we come into full employment, we don't go past full employment, because once that happens, then inflationary pressures will develop more in a more persistent way and, and, and interest rates will rise and recession risks will, will rise as well. So, and then on the fiscal policy side, you know, if lawmakers do nothing else, they pass no additional legislation, 
that fiscal support that we were getting in 2020 and 2021, that will be turning, it's already turning into a headwind because it's starting to uh, come down. So both those things, uh, you know, uh, monetary and fiscal policy have, have gone from being, you know, gale force tailwinds to the economy to being pretty significant headwinds at this point. And they're going to be strong headwinds, you know, by mid late this year, which I think is feels like it, that's kind of the sort of the right thing, because, again, the economy is coming into full employment. Inflation is high, you know, and we want to get that back down and we don't want to overheat. So it feels like the policy balance that we have in place right now are pretty good. And the last thing I'll say is this is probably the time that we now should start thinking about policies for the longer run. You know, we passed an infrastructure bill check really good about long run. But, you know, we need to start thinking about labor supply and how to raise labor force participation and, you know, climate change and, you know, housing. And we got some deep seated problems that we need to address for the long run. Kind of sounds like we need to build back better. Uh, yeah, well, and I'm, I'm all for it if it's paid for. And it feels like, you know, if it's paid for, you know, I'm good with it. Well, I think that that's that's really that that that's our pivot, too. I mean, on, on the uh, Concord Coalition is you, you need to look at things to get the economy growing over the long term. And uh, and how do you do that in a fiscally responsible way? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's um, that's a debate I'm anxious to get back to because we've had two years of up and down crisis, which you need to do. I mean, you need to respond to the crisis. And so you don't do long-term planning at that, uh, at that, at that juncture. I'd like to you know, talk about uh, the labor supply. Uh, uh, I'd like to talk about immigration. I'd like to yep. talk about healthcare costs and uh, uh, the sustainability of our policies. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can, Hey, What's your projection? Can we get I back to that? By the I end got of an the idea. Year? I got my own podcast, by the way, guys. <laughs> it's called Inside Economics. I'm just a slight advertisement. You don't have to. Me? Yeah, but I, how about you guys come on my podcast and I can grill you love for a little bit. All right, to. then that's a deal. I'm going to send an invitation your way. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for this segment. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I have been talking with Mark Zandi, Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. Thank you, Mark, for being on. We'll be right back after these short messages, and Tori and I will be joined by Steve Robinson, Chief Economist of the Concord Coalition. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, and Concord's Chief Economist Steve Robinson are joining me to continue our discussion about the economic outlook, and we'll add in a few other things. Um, Tori, we've got uh, this is this is Jobs Week right, with right. a uh, jobs report coming out. Uh, what are what are things looking like? Yeah. First Friday of every month, jobs data, get your popcorn. Um, interesting week for uh, for job speculation. Um, there's a lot of concern among economists like Mark Zandi um, about the jobs report that's coming out on Friday. Um, they, you know, they, they conduct the, the, the survey uh, in the, uh, the week in which the 12th of the month uh, hits. And, um, a lot of businesses were were up and down uh, in in January because of Omicron. So economists are expecting a, a relatively 
uh, mild uh, jobs report on on Friday, you know, maybe 155,000 jobs created. But there are actually some economists that are predicting that the U.S. may have actually lost jobs uh, last month just because so many people were out with Omicron. They were either taking they were either exposed and had to quarantine at home. They were sick and had to stay home or maybe they had to stay home and take care of sick kids or maybe schools were closed and temporarily online while uh, uh, the pandemic passed through school, you know, forcing parents at home working parents at home. So um, there's there's a lot of, of concern about what uh, Friday's jobs report will look like. And then today uh, we had some more information about uh, the December job, jobs report. Apparently about 4.3 million people quit or changed jobs in December, which is, I mean, it, it, the, the record high was the month before at 4.5 million. So it, it's not, you know, a new high, but it's definitely really up there. So there is just a lot, a lot, a lot of churn in the labor market uh, these days. And we're going to see a lot of volatility in the jobs data, which is you know what we were talking about with, with Mark Zandi in, in the previous segment. So um, interesting week for jobs data this week. And of course, it all plays out in a political year. So whether the jobs report looks good or bad on a month by month basis, despite all the warnings about don't look at month to month basis, there's going to be a political spin to uh, to all of these jobs reports. Yeah. One data point does not make a trend, right? Exactly. Uh, Steve, there was some uh, been some significant news lately on monetary policy. Uh, the Fed seems to have officially pivoted from uh, quantitative easing to quantitative squeezing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what, uh, how, do, how does that work? What's that going to look like? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a new term. I haven't heard the quantitative squeezing. That's good. <laughs> I, I just made it up. I'm <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. So, you know, just a, a brief recap. Um, you know, the, the Fed sort of embarked on a, on a new policy back uh, in 2000, 2007, 2008 because of the financial crisis. And they began buying, you know, massive quantities of mortgage-backed securities and government securities. And they built up their portfolio from about a trillion dollars to almost four and a half trillion dollars over the course of the, the, the financial crisis and the years that followed. And so shortly before the pandemic hit in 2019, they were slowly allowing their balance to, 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 to decline. It was like, say, four and a half trillion, and it was going down a, a bit. And then the pandemic hit, and the Fed pulled out all the stops, and they doubled their balance from about four and a half trillion to almost nine trillion. And so, you know, this was the, 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 the famous quantitative easing. They essentially were buying up all of the financial assets they could get their hands on. I'm, I'm exaggerating here a little, but you know, it was a, a massive increase from, from a trillion to four and a half trillion and now to nine trillion. And of course, inflation has reared its ugly head and the Fed is now saying, look, uh, it's time to stop buying and think about selling. Now, they, they, they have framed this in such a way that, in fact, they're still buying a, a small amount of bonds um, between now and, and early March, they're, they're, they're minimal relative to what they had been doing in the past. But the idea is that they're slowly trying to unwind the quantitative easing policy. And the first step in, in you know, the old famous hole is when you're in, you know, the famous saying, when you're in a hole, stop digging. So 
you know, they're, they're building a mountain and they're going to stop piling on top of the mountain. Um, and then they're going to presumably start to unwind. But if you look at the statements coming from the Fed, they've left it very open-ended as to, you know, when they're going to start drawing their balance down and how quickly they're going to draw it down. And at what point they're going to stop drawing it down. All of this is being, being left, you know, uh, to speculation. As, and, and they, of course, say, well, it's going to depend on how the economy is doing and what inflation is doing. And so, you know, we're embarking on uh, uh, an experiment. It's a historically unprecedented experiment where the Fed has built up this huge balance sheet, and they're now going to try to unwind it and hopefully, you know, curb inflation without triggering a recession, which is, of course, the typical result whenever the Fed starts tightening policy and raising interest rates, you quite often get recessions. Whether that'll happen this time is anybody's guess, but you know we're all, I guess, going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, this is really something to hold your breath about. You look at the official uh, reports, and most everybody, people just don't tend to assume worst outcomes. It's kind of like, well, I'm sure the Fed can engineer a uh, soft landing, so to speak, but nobody knows how. And most most often, there is not a, a soft landing <laughs> from something like this. So um, it could be a, an, an interesting ride. Um, I'll bet, Tori, back to Capitol Hill on the legislative front. Um, there's a huge uh, pile of unfinished business that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And it doesn't seem like there's any movement on any of it. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of spinning wheels, but not a lot of progress. Right. I mean, um, that, you know, we're still operating under continuing resolution. We don't have full year appropriations for fiscal 22 yet. That deadline is quickly approaching as the current CR expires on February 18th. Um, now, the good news is that apparently Republicans and Democrats are trading paper. Uh, but, you know, there's some concern, I think, among Republicans that if Build Back Better is still alive, um, they are, you know, a little reluctant to agree on appropriations because they want to see how much, you know, non-defense spending Democrats are going to jam into to Build Back Better. Um, so you've, you've got uh, uh, a Congress that, you know, they have to do appropriations. Democrats still looking at, at Build Back Better. Um, there's a China competes bill that passed the Senate that's sort of waiting for action in the House. Um, the big bipartisan efforts right now in the Senate aren't focused on appropriations and they aren't focused on on Build Back Better or any kind of bipartisan agreement on things like climate change, actually, the big two efforts in the Senate right now, at least in, that are getting bipartisan attention, are electoral college reform, and, you know, that group led by, by Susan Collins, and, and Russia sanctions. Um, so um, I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting what the, the Senate is choosing to, to prioritize. And then, of course, you know, uh, at the bottom of the list, but by no means least of importance, you know, Democrats in the, the Senate have got a the, the Judiciary Committee have got to talk about, you know, a new Supreme Court justice uh, with Breyer announcing his his retirement. There's going to be a vacancy. And I know that the Democrats want to get the new Supreme Court justice uh, confirmed before the November elections. So there's a lot to do. Um, there's a lot of job owning going on. But right now, not not a lot of product. You know, I, I saw an article in The Washington Post over the weekend that uh, 
was sort of talking about what happens to presidential agendas. How do presidential agendas die? Well, President Biden's agenda has hardly died. He did get two huge bills through uh, last year. But but as for the um, the big Build Back Better initiative, um, there's um, it does remind me a little bit, and the uh, article made uh, reference to this to the end of the Clinton health care. Uh, plan, you know, in in uh, Bill Clinton's first term, there was a huge initiative on health care. We all were everybody. All of Washington was uh, was 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 just consumed with the uh, the Clinton health care plan. Uh, and and it just kind of died out. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it never it never it it it, it drizzled to an end. It fizzled. Uh, Death by a thousand it, paper cuts. Yeah, exactly. And it just like sort of almost as an aside late in the year, George Mitchell, who was the majority leader then just said, well, we're not going to have a vote on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it should be obvious by now that we're not going to have a vote. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if, if nobody has noticed, the patient has died. And I, I, it, it wouldn't surprise me if Build Back Better became just one giant climate bill. Well, uh, that's a good place to end it. Uh, that's all for this week. I want to thank our guest, Mark Zandi from Moody's Analytics and my colleagues, Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson for joining me on this Washington catch-up section. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.